John 18. In your books, this is Lesson 167. What we are going to be discussing today is actually in all four Gospels, but I'm going to do most of the uh, running around and just leave you parked, okay, in John 18. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 23. And once you're there, would you bow your head with me and we'll begin in a word of prayer. Our Father, we want to now quiet ourselves before you and to do so with great thankfulness, thinking of Thanksgiving coming up. But every day we should be so thankful that we have acceptance with you through our caring and our sympathetic and our faithful great high priest, Jesus Christ. And we are truly overwhelmed by the truth that you did, Father, so love us that you sent your only begotten Son to this earth in order to cancel a debt that was ours, one we could never pay. And by his death and the shedding of his holy, sinless blood, we are set free from the bonds of slavery to sin and to death. And you've taken away the sting of the grave. Again, we can never thank you enough for that truth. And we ask, Father, that you would deliver us now from those thoughts that can so often consume our minds about the affairs of our lives this, this coming week. Deliver us from any self-absorption in your presence. We ask that our eyes would be turned away from who and what we are to instead look full into the wonderful face of your Son. And may our vision of him today through your word increase our ever-growing faith. May our comprehension of his person be so utterly filling that he holds our attention and we put all of our thoughts captive to him. We ask that you would sanctify us through your truth. And Father, we do not want to be easily swept away by every wind of doctrine and also by the sights and the sounds of this earth. So help us to keep our vision on Christ. And we also want to thank you that you do rule in the lives of men and that you accomplish your will in all things, that no one can stay your hand or challenge you, and that you perform for us the things that have been appointed individually for each of us from before the foundation of the world, things that have been ministered by your own loving hands in order to shape us and transform us into the very image of your Son. We ask, Father, that no matter what trials you have for us, may it be that our faces will always shine forth your glory. And people will look at us and they will know that you have walked with us through the furnace. That you have comforted us. That your spirit has sustained us. That your grace has indeed been sufficient. And that we have been led in triumph by your Son, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Although that huge party that arrived in Gethsemane to arrest Jesus now had firsthand experience of his majestic power when by just the effect of his spoken name, I am, they all fell backward to the ground. They all had experienced that power. And now they also had a had additional first-hand eyewitness experience of seeing his miraculous healing power in undoing that ear damage that Peter had done to the high priest's servant. I mean, think about that. They'd had two fantastic experiences. He spoke, and they all fell backward, and then they saw him literally pick up an ear and put it back on a man. And yet, even after all that, what did they do? They continued on with their arresting and binding of the Lord Jesus Christ. And is that not, therefore, another tragic demonstration of the stubborn hardness of the unconverted man's heart? It absolutely is. But even so, in spite of all that, circumstances were continuing just as they had been planned by the Godhead. Everything was right on schedule. The uh, Father had allowed, in eternity past, he had allowed Satan this hour of darkness because it was going to fulfill his plan for the redemption of mankind. Now, Satan, at this point, must have thought that he was about to have, finally, at long last, have that satisfying victory of finally destroying Jesus. You know, throughout the whole Old Testament, he was trying to prevent Jesus from ever coming here. 
And then once Jesus was here, he was constantly trying to destroy him, wasn't he? So from his perspective on things, he's thinking, well, I finally am going to destroy him and prevent him from setting up an earthly kingdom. But little did he realize that his evil ways were being divinely orchestrated for the very, very, very greatest good that this world has ever seen. Isn't that ironic? That Satan was used to accomplish the greatest thing that this world has ever seen, which was the shedding of Christ's sinless blood, his death, and his bodily resurrection from the grave, which together won the victory for all of us over sin and over death and over the grave. Had you ever thought about the fact that essentially all mankind was represented in that arresting party? And why was that? Well, that was to give us a picture of the fact that all men are guilty of putting Jesus to death, which we are, because it is our sin that put him to death. In that party of men who came to arrest him, you know, following Judas, there were, think of this, there were Jews and Gentiles, right? There were Jews and Gentiles. There were soldiers and there were servants. So there were free men and there were bondmen, bond slaves. There were priests and there were police. So there were religious authorities and there were civil authorities. There were elders. We are told, uh, Mark 14, 43, there were elders, so older men. And then there were younger men, as we learned, because they were the ones that tried to grab that streaker, who I speculated might have been young John Mark. So we had Jews and Gentiles, soldiers and servants, priests and police, old men and young men. And this combined group, many of whom were usually at great odds with one another, even hated one another. You had Pharisees and you had Sadducees, and they usually did not care too much about one another because their doctrines were so different. And then you had the Jews and you had the Romans, right? And they didn't get along very well either. But all it didn't, it didn't matter because in this situation, they all had something in common. They were all blind to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. They all, we could say this, they all had damaged ears, didn't they? Except that their ears weren't so conspicuous as, as Malchus's damaged ears. Their ears were damaged spiritually because they could not hear, or I should say they would not hear, when he spoke his divine name twice. When he said, I am, twice. They, wouldn't, they did not hear that because they would not hear it. And they also would not hear when he twice told them that everything that was taking place was in perfect accord with prophetic scripture. He told them that. You can look at Matthew 26, 54, and 56. So twice he spoke his name. Twice he told them that everything he, that was happening was in accordance with scripture. And yet, rather than being persuaded to believe him, those in charge of that arresting party, which were the religious rulers, the Jews, they remained totally insensitive. And thus, what did they do? They seized him and they had him bound. So let's look at that, first of all, in verses 12 to 14 of John 18. Starting in verse 12, it says, Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. All right, in this lesson entitled Tied, Tried, and Denied, that's the poetry in me coming out, (laughs) Tied, Tried, and Denied, We're going to begin to see the sequence of events that alternate the reader's focus from the unfair trials of the the innocent Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you just how unfair they were when we come back in January, Lord willing. I won't have time to develop that today except to just tell you they were very, very unfair. Um, But we're going to have our focused attention from the trials of the Lord over to the sinful denials of Peter. You'll notice here, I didn't read it, but in verse 15, we're taken to Simon Peter, and we see what's going on with him. And this back and forth between the Lord's trials and Peter's was done purposely by the Holy Spirit in order to emphasize man's great need for the Lord's redemption. 
You see, while Peter's sinning, what is the Lord doing? He's enduring those terrible trials that will take him to the cross so he can die for Peter's sin. So all this is done purposely. It does get a little confusing, but we'll work it out. I think we've noticed um, over the many years of our study that far too often we find a picture of ourselves in Peter, don't we? I think that's why there's so much in the Gospels about Peter, because in Peter we see ourselves. We see ourselves in his misunderstandings. We always we all have misunderstandings about the Word of God. Um, I think many of us can identify with his foot and mouth disease, right? Um, with his hasty in the flesh reaction to things, you know, just immediate reaction without thinking things through, and of course his many blunders. Yet, for all his flaws, Peter did believe in Jesus Christ. Remember, he is the one who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He did have that mustard seed of faith that it takes to be a genuine Christian. He blundered a lot. And don't we all? But he did, he did truly love the Lord. So in Peter, what we see is the true character of our sinful dual natures, the battle of the, the spiritual man against the carnal man that goes on with all, within all of us. I don't think there are any of us here today who would dare to boast that we have never denied the Lord. Would anybody want to say that you've never once a sin of commission or a sin of omission? You know, to speak up for him when, and, and you didn't. That's a sin of omission. None of us could say. We have all, at one time or another, sadly, denied our Lord. Now, actually, the structure of the gospel passages that we're going to be looking at in this next series of lessons is, as I mentioned, very complex. It is complicated. Because we do get moved all over the place in order to determine the correct chronology. But I don't want you to worry about that because I've done that homework thanks to harmonies of the Gospels that tell us what happened first and what happened next. So you don't, you don't worry about where we go next. Just It's all laid out for you, so just follow the path and it'll, it'll smooth out. But if you were to just read John's Gospel or to just read Matthew or any one of them, you'd get confused. If you flipped over to the other one, you'd say... What's the sequence here? Because it is, it gets pretty rough. And it does too when the Lord, you know, at the tomb, it gets pretty rough. But the harmonies, praise the Lord for harmonies. Uh, and we'll find as we take the time to do this, to go from Mark to Matthew to John and see, see the chronology and the sequence of events, we're going to find that all together the Lord went through six trials. A lot of people don't know that. If you just ask a person off the street or even a person sitting in a pew, how many trials did the Lord have to endure? They probably wouldn't know, but it was six, and you can remember that because six is the number of man. You see, these were men's trials of the Lord, and they had nothing whatsoever to do with God's perspective of his son. There were three religious trials, which were directed by the Jewish authorities, and then there were three uh, civil trials, which were directed by the Roman authorities. And that's the same pattern we have throughout Scripture, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So you can remember the Jews tried him first, and then the Greeks or the Gentiles, the Romans. Now, the three religious Jewish trials consisted of what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to cover one of the trials this morning, and that was the Lord's preliminary examination before Annas. Annas was a co-reigning high priest with his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So his first religious trial was before Annas. Then he had an informal trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin council. And the third religious trial was again before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, but it was a formal trial. So you have him before Annas, informal before Caiaphas, and formal before Caiaphas, okay? Then the three Roman trials are easier to remember. He, was, he stood before Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Then Pilate sent him over to Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. And then Herod sent him back to Pilate, to Pontius Pilate. So uh, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. Now, you know, of course, that the Roman government ruled Israel at this time. And when she came in, she did not abolish the Jewish Sanhedrin Council. 
they allowed, the Romans allowed this council to continue under their authority. So although the council did have considerable influence over the Jewish people, ultimately this council was accountable to Rome. Rome used the institution of the council in order to more effectively govern the Jewish people. I think it's interesting because uh, Rome used the council, but those clever head honchos in the council also used the Romans. So they're all using each other. A bunch of clever guys, you know, clever worldly-wise, clever. And we'll see that particularly when it gets to Pilate, how the Jewish council and the Jewish religious rulers used Pilate to get what they wanted. Now, the Sanhedrin consisted of how many men? You should all know by now. How many men were in the council? Very good, 70, 70 men. Some were religious leaders, like the chief priests. Some were civic leaders, like the elders. Some were lawyers or uh, teachers, like the scribes. Some of them were of the Sadducean sect. Some of them were of the Pharisaic sect. And over them all was... Caiaphas, a high priest, who made the total number of members 71. Now, in this freaky situation at the time of Jesus, there were actually sort of two high priests, so there were 72. But that was a no-no according to Levitical law. The, the law, and you can read it in Exodus 40:15 and Numbers 25:13, said that a high priest was to retain his office until his death. But that did not happen here, and that's um, because of Rome. Rome did not want one man to have that much power for a lifetime. But Annas was quite a manipulator, and I'll tell you in a minute, he really did retain the power for his whole lifetime. So anyway, let's do a quick history at this point of the two corrupt high men who were basically in charge of the, uh, the, the, the Jewish people, the council and the Jewish people. And when we look at these men, we're going to have a better understanding of uh, why they took Jesus first to Annas before they took him to Caiaphas. And also, I want to do this so we have a better understanding why, with leaders like this, Israel was in such a condition of spiritual bankruptcy at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that these Jewish trials were absolutely a farce of justice. Absolutely no justice, nothing legal about them at all. And with these two corrupt men, you'll understand why. All right? It's interesting to learn, first of all, that uh, Annas and Caiaphas, the two men most responsible for pronouncing the death sentence on Jesus Christ, that they were, and they still are to this day, despised by the Jewish people. It's very, very interesting to find this. In fact, the Jewish Talmud, you know what the Talmud is? It's a, uh, a, a lot of volumes written by rabbis over the centuries that's a commentary on the Old Testament. But in the Jewish Talmud, there is actually a curse pronounced on the entire family of Annas. Interesting. And it says this. This is a di direct quote from the Talmud. Woe to the family of Annas and to their serpent hissings, end of quote. You see, the Jewish nation has admitted and has recognized that these two corrupt high priests were wicked men and that together they had succeeded in turning the temple into a den of thieves. Hmm, where did we hear that? Jesus pronounced that. I mean, he said that they had turned the, the temple into a den of thieves. And the Jews admit that. They had. So isn't it ironic that even though, by and large, most Jewish people to this day still reject Jesus Christ as their Messiah, it's ironic that Israel and the Jewish Talmud acknowledges the greedy corruption and the satanic nature of the Lord's primary accusers. Isn't that interesting? To me, it was. Just go like this, even if you don't think it's interesting. All right. <laughs> All of you are looking at me. Is that interesting? I think it's interesting. <laughs> now, Annas was appointed to his position by Cyrenius. You know, when you read 
the, the Christmas story from Luke 2, you read about Cyrenius, right? He was the um, governor of Syria, in, and uh, he appointed Annas to his position, which in itself is wrong, because there shouldn't be a Gentile assigning a high priest to his position. Annas probably paid the most and got the position way back in 6 AD. So Jesus was just a small boy when Annas became the high priest. Annas held his position for about nine years, which was a no-no, too, because the high priest was to hold the position until he died, right? But he had it officially for nine years, and then Valerius Gratus came along, and he deposed him. Valerius Gratus was the uh, governor of Judea right before Pontius Pilate. He was the one who preceded Pontius Pilate as governor. And he deposed Annas in 15 A.D., But even though this man, Annas, so clever, had been deposed by the Romans uh, almost 20 years earlier from where we are in our study, he was a skilled manipulator, and he was a shrewd and calloused businessman. And he continued to exercise great power through the election of the male members of his family to the high priesthood, again, all through bribery. I'm sure he paid lots of money to have his sons. He actually had five of his own sons elected to the high priesthood. One of them, named Jonathan, you can actually read about in Acts 4, verse 6. It says John, and when you're reading Acts 4, 6, you might get a little confused because it says that Annas and Caiaphas and John are together in this uh, session And you think, what would John be doing with those guys? And it's not John the Apostle. It's actually one of Annas' sons, Jonathan. But he had five sons who followed him in the high priesthood. And so who do you think was really ruling through them? He was. And then he also had a son-in-law elected to that position. His name was Caiaphas. And he even had a grandson who was the high priest for a while. So he really, Annas really, even though officially he wasn't the high priest, he was still holding the prestigious prestigious position um, and had the power. At the time of Christ's trials, we know that Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was the official high priest. Yet even though Annas was not officially in that office, he was the one the Jewish people usually went to. He was the one who was the power behind it all and had been ever since 6 A.D. So that's throughout Jesus' almost his entire life. Annas was the big mucky muck, okay? So let's look at his character. Annas was an astute, able, arrogant, ambitious man. His influence over the Jewish people was very, very corrupting because he was selfish, he was evil. Uh, and he was a Sadducee. Caiaphas, they all were. All those, all, everyone in his family who reigned were Sadducees. And what did the Sadducees, why were they so sad, you see? Why? Right, exactly. Anybody be sad if you didn't believe in the re- resurrection. They didn't believe in the spirit, the supernatural. They didn't believe in um, sp- the spirit world. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so what did they believe in? Well, they believed that if you obeyed the Lord, I mean, I guess they did believe in God, yeah. <laughs> Deny all the supernatural, but if you obeyed God, you'd have your rewards where? Right here, in the here and now. So you see, Annas and his crowd collected immense wealth, and then they went around saying, look how we're blessed by God, because we're so rich. Uh, so they were Sadducees. They were feared, and they were hated by the Jews, their own people. They were feared because of their immense power. They were hated because they got rich gouging their own people, didn't they? We have learned that the merchandising going on in the temple was actually referred to as Annas's Bazaar. And he had a monopoly on that whole trade, all that corruption going on in the temple. And when Jesus came along and cleansed the temple twice, once early in his ministry and once again at the very end of his ministry... He immediately incurred the seething enmity of this old, greedy politician, Annas. Therefore, do you think that Jesus, as he stands before this guy, is going to encounter a lot of mercy? 
Absolutely not. Ironically, Annas means, his name means Jehovah is gracious. But you're going to see no grace, no mercy coming out of him for Jesus. And he really is the one behind all the events of this night. He was as much a pawn in the hands of Satan as who else? As Judas, really. Now, at the time of the Lord's trials, Caiaphas, oh, and by the way, Annas was about 70 years of age at this time. Caiaphas, was, his son-in-law, was a middle-aged man, whatever that means, 40-ish or something like that. And he had been the high priest for some 18 years, which was longer than any New Testament high priest. He also likely bought his position through monetary bribery and some kind of a political arrangement with the Romans that, wherein he promised to squelch any insurrection that might arise against the Romans. The Jews acknowledged Caiaphas in a civic way, but they always went to Annas. Um, he, Annas took precedence over him in religious matters. I don't really know why, because I don't think Annas was one to go to for spiritual or religious matters, would you think? <laughs> but Caiaphas was the one, and John reminds us of this when he tells us in verse 14 that Caiaphas, it's like John is saying, remember Caiaphas? He's the one who had counseled to take an approach of expediency with regard to Jesus. Remember, they had an emergency meeting. This was back in John um, 11. Verse 48, after the Lord had raised Lazarus from the dead, and he, he did so publicly, openly, and there were many people who witnessed it, and there was no way to deny that miracle. And the Jews had an emergency meeting, the Sanhedrin, because they were very concerned that if this kept up, all people would believe on him. Here's what they said. All men will believe on him, and Rome shall come and take away both our place and nation, who they're really concerned about themselves and their power and prestige over the people. They feared a grassroots uprising among the people. They feared that this popular messianic fever would boomerang for them because Rome would come down hard and remove them from their positions and their influence. So Caiaphas spoke up at this meeting. He was the high priest and he was the one who resolved the matter by saying this. And you can hear the man's arrogance in the statement. He's talking to his peers in the Sanhedrin council. And you know what he says? You know nothing at all. Is that arrogant? You know nothing at all? And then he goes on to say, it is expedient for us. Is he concerned about the Jewish people? No, he's concerned about his own little group there. It's expedient for us. That one man should die instead of the nation. And when he said that, unknown to him, he was actually prophesying, wasn't he? You see, God can use whoever he wants. He can use a donkey. He can use a, a wicked man like Caiaphas to speak forth pro prophecy. You see, God was seeing to it that there was a clear and a plain testimony from the legal head of Israel as to the purpose for his son's death. And what was that purpose? His son was dying. Look at four, verse 14. He was dying for who? John said it right. He was dying for the people. So that truth about his son's reason for dying came from the legal head of Israel, the high priest. Very interesting how God does, works all this, isn't it? So there are two men before whom Christ would stand first in trial. And neither man would be an impartial judge by any stretch of the imagination. One has extremely vested financial interests at stake, and the other has both financial and political interests at stake. They ask Jesus questions, of course. They ask him questions, but the fact is they have already predetermined his fate. He was going to die for the people, but really... They wanted him to die selfishly so they wouldn't lose their positions. But uh, they'd already determined his fate, but this isn't because men were in control. When we read the Bible very carefully, we find that behind the pharaohs, 
And behind all the Nebuchadnezzars and the Sennacheribs, and behind the high priests of Jesus' day, and also behind the great wicked figures of the 20th and 21st century, and we've seen a whole slew of them, some of us, who have lived through the past two centuries. We haven't lived through all of it, but part of the 20th and part of the 21st century. Who have we seen? Wicked men like Stalin and Mussolini and Hitler and uh, Osama bin Laden and um, Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, and today the biggest threat is probably from Ahmadinejad. All kinds of evil men, but behind all of them is the hand of God. He rules in the kingdoms of men. He gives the power of the kingdoms to whomever he will, and it's all according to his plans and purposes. And that's our great assurance in every instance, isn't it? Don't you take assurance in knowing? Because if we thought men were ruling things, it would really be scary and we could all be basket cases. But God's hand is orchestrating all of it. He moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. We can know that even when facing the, the rage of twisted men and having to endure the greed and the egotism of world rulers, and the lack of integrity and the lack of honesty of those in uh, positions of power, we can know that the Lord has walked this path before us. And it does not mean that he is not in control. He is. All this was happening because it was his hour to go where? To the cross. It was his hour. He planned it, and he was seeing to it that it would happen. And this is why he could be so very composed this night of his arrest. And guess what? Now it's our hour. It's our hour. That's hard to say. Our hour. <laughs> it's our hour to take up a cross and follow him. But we can also do it with complete composure, just as our Lord did, knowing that he is sovereign over all things. And isn't there wonderful comfort and peace in knowing that God is sovereign? Absolutely. I just I remind myself of that all the time. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's still on his throne. Well, John 18, 12 tells us that the Lord was bound. He did not need to be bound because he would have gone forth with them peacefully. He would have had no, there would have been no struggle whatsoever. So they did not need to bind him. Uh, he would have been just like a lamb going to the slaughter. But they bound him anyway. Remember, Judas had warned them to hold him fast. And I think that even if he had not told them to do that, that they would have done so anyway. Jesus was bound because he was feared. The religious rulers knew that he possessed amazing powers. No one could deny that, even though they officially gave credit to Satan, didn't they? They said he was doing his powers in his miracles in the power of Beelzebub. But they knew he had the ability to perform great and wondrous miracles. And they also knew that he had escaped previous episodes of impending death. So they didn't want to take any risk of him again using his power to, um, to resist arrest. As if they didn't have just an example of what he could do, right? When he said, I am, and they all fell backward. But they, didn't, they bound him because they didn't want him to use his power to resist arrest in any way or to escape from them. And it's so ludicrous because, you know, to think that mere bonds could have pre prevented him from doing anything if he had so desired. Couldn't he have called down how many angels, ladies? 72,000 angels if he had wanted to or just said a word from his mouth. And that would have been the end of, of the arrest. But, but they bound him. And they probably bound him in chains. Now, we're not told that, but uh, we can remember Joseph of the Old Testament. You know Joseph? guy of many, the coat of many colors. Joseph pictures the Lord Jesus in more ways than any other Bible character. He's a prophetic type, a picture of Jesus Christ in many, many ways. And he was bound in chains. We're told in Psalm 105:17 that Joseph, remember, he was hated by his own brothers. Jesus, too, was hated by his own, the Jewish people. He was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. And then it tells us that he had his feet hurt with fetters and was laid in iron. So he was laid in chains. 
And uh, probably Jesus was too. They probably took his hands and bound them behind him and then put his feet, his feet in chains. So he'd have to walk slow with the chains. Not only did the Lord's binding at the time of his arrest fulfill the picture in messianic type provided for us by Joseph's experience, but it also fulfilled the picture given by the Old Testament sacrificial types of the Lord's atoning death. You do know that all the sacrificial animals which were brought to the altar as guilt offerings for the sins of the people were also to be bound. They were to be bound. Isaac, remember, was bound to the altar by his father Abraham. And even though Joseph may best portray the Lord's betrayal by his own, Isaac is surely the best picture and type of Christ's willingness to lay down his life for in, in obedience to his Father's will. So Jesus was bound in fulfillment of all of these Old Testament types. You know, picture of Joseph, a picture of Abraham, picture of all the sacrificial animals. But the real reason he was bound is because of our sins. You do know that, right? He was bound because of our sins. He allowed himself to be bound and taken prisoner so that you and I could be set free. I wonder if there's... All right, so after they, after they bound him, and notice this word. This is in... Uh, I still can't see very well up here. Verse 13, the word led, I circled it in my Bible. They led him from Gethsemane to the home of Annas. And it's not without purpose that the inspired word of God used that little word led. Because it is intended, you see, to take our minds back to Isaiah 53, 7, where it was predicted some 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. Led, same word, led as a lamb to the slaughter. Unknowingly, the enemies of Jesus Christ were once again fulfilling prophetic scripture in leading him. In fact, not only did this leading of Christ from Gethsemane to the high priest fulfill prophecy directly, it also fulfilled prophecy typically. You know, in types, such as with Joseph and Isaac. According to Levitical law, every sacrificial animal was to be brought or led first to the priest before ever going to the altar. So the Lord Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who came to die for the sins of the people, was led first to Annas and Caiaphas. Why? To, to fulfill the type, but because they represent the priest. So he was led first to the priest before he was ever then led to the altar, which was Calvary. Now, by the way, you do know that the conspirators of this arrest would have thought that they were the ones who were leading Jesus, wouldn't they? They've got him in chains, they've got him bound, and they're leading to him to Annas' house. They would have thought they were the ones doing that. But the truth is, it was the Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit had been the one who had led the Lord into the wilderness to confront Satan. And that's actually the exact word again that's used in Matthew 4.1. That Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And what did he do there? He confronted Satan in the temptations. Here, he is again, the Spirit is again leading Christ to the cross to once and for all defeat Satan. You see, in the wilderness, he confronted him, and he had a victory, but on the cross, he really defeated him and had the ultimate victory. Well, it's presumed that Jesus would have been led around the northern wall of Jerusalem in, in order to avoid parading him right through the city of Jerusalem. Now, remember, Gethsemane is on the east side of the city. And Annas' palace is on the western side, inside of Jerusalem, the western inner part of Jerusalem. So to get Jesus from the east uh, he had, you know, got, go down the Kidron Valley, and they led him around the northern wall over and then inside the wall of Jerusalem and then over to the palace on the western side, inside the city. Okay, Jerusalem, Gethsemane is outside the city. 
but the palace of Annas is inside. So they had to come in through the walls. But they didn't want to take him through the eastern gate because he'd mar- they'd have to march him with all their lanterns and torches right through the middle of the city and wake up a lot of people. And people say, why are you arresting Jesus? So they snuck him around the northern side. And to do that, and then to enter into the wall, into the city, to get to Annas's palace, you know which gate they had to go through? The sheep gate. Oh, my. Again, so perfect in every little detail. This gate got its name, Sheep Gate, because of the fact that it was the gate through which the sacrificial animals were led. It was the gate closest to the temple. So they took the animals through the Sheep Gate to get them to the temple to take them to the altar after they had seen the priest. Perfect, isn't it? All so perfect. Well, let's look on now to uh, um, move on to... Peter's first denial. And we are going to have to leave Peter hanging. We're only going to get to his first denial in 2011. So we were praying yesterday in leadership that maybe over the holidays, Peter would have a change of heart and not go on to to make the next two denials in 2012. I doubt that'll happen, but but we're only going to get to his first denial. So let's look at uh, verses 15 to 18. It says, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did, look at this, another disciple, not named. That disciple was known unto the high priest. So whoever this unknown disciple is, the high priest knows him. Annas knows him. And they went in with Jesus, or the unknown disciple went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? And what did Peter say? I am not. There it is, first denial. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. All right, here's the circumstances. After Peter's initial panic and his subsequent flight from the Lord in the garden with the other ten apostles, he apparently regained some of his courage, enough at least, to follow the Lord, as he had sworn he would do back in John 13, 37. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that Peter followed afar off, which would not be difficult to do because that arresting party did have a lot of lanterns and torches. So even from a distance, you could see all the lights and see where they were going. Now, probably after re-entering into the city through that sheep gate, the majority of the Jewish religious leaders that had gone out to Gethsemane would have gone to their separate homes. There's no reason for all those chief priests and elders and all the rest of them to go to Annas' house. So they would have gone back to their homes and maybe gotten a couple hours sleep or something. Also, the Roman cohort would have returned to the fortress of Antonia. So the group that continued with Jesus to uh, Annas' palace would have consisted only of the Jewish temple guard. That's all it would have taken. I mean, he was bound now. There was no one else with him. All the disciples were gone. So the temple guard took him to Annas' palace. And there were probably also some some servants of the high priests there, like Malchus. Now, again, although we might want to, initially when we see this, we might want to admire Peter for at least being the only apostle who did this much, unless this unnamed disciple happens to be John. We'll talk about that in a minute. But even though we might want to admire him, we really shouldn't, because this was, again, another blunder. It was in direct contradiction to the Lord's will, which the Lord had expressed indirectly to his men when, remember, he said to the arresting officers, who do you want? You want me? Okay, then let these go their way. This is one time I don't want them to go my way. Let them go their way. And so he was, you know, providing safety for them. Peter should have gotten the hint. And uh, the Lord had also tried to warn him that he wasn't properly prepared for the temptation that awaited him because in the garden he had been sleeping instead of doing what? Praying. So he wasn't ready. But instead of going somewhere else, as he should have done, Peter 
walked right into the temptation which the Lord had uh, forewarned him about in the garden. Well, we need to, at this point, form a bit of a picture of the homes in that day, especially the palatial type of buildings in which wealthy men like Annas and Caiaphas would live. And it's presumed that these guys lived together. They had this huge residence, and probably Annas lived in one wing of the house, and Caiaphas lived in the other wing of the house. It might have been so big that even some of his other sons lived in the house. I don't know, but it was a huge residence. Now, a place like this, a house like this, would the wall of the house, the outer wall, would have gone right up to the street. If you've ever been in Europe or places like that, the houses come right up to the streets. Even in Boston and some places in this country, that's pretty, you can picture that, okay? And then um, there would be a a, uh, a, a space in the wall of the house that was a passageway, and at the front of that passageway was a gate or a door, usually a gate. You can picture like a, a wrought iron gate of some kind. And where they were really wealthy, there would be a gatekeeper or a doorkeeper. And the, in this case, it was this young girl. She was the doorkeeper. And when she, you'd have to tell who you were, you know, identify yourself, and then she'd open the gate, and you could pass through a long, narrow um, passageway in the, in the middle of the wall of the house, and it would lead into a courtyard. And the courtyard was actually, the, the house surrounded the courtyard. All right? So uh, Annas and Caiaphas lived in a gated community, we could say. <laughs> and um, so that's, that's the picture of the house. The gatekeeper, we are told, knew this other disciple. And so she, he's not named, but she knew him, and he's also known by the high priest. So she lets him in. Now, most expositors, if you read their commentaries, most of them think it was the Apostle John here. Most of them say it was John. I do have a little bit of a problem with that because in Acts 4.13, Acts 4.13, I don't even know if this is in your book. I saw this the other day. Um, He and Peter are standing before Annas and Caiaphas, and Annas and Caiaphas don't know them. They perceive that they are ignorant and, you know, Galileans. And why would John, John was young, and he lived most of his life in Galilee. Why would he be known by the high priest? I don't know. I don't think it was John here. Others speculate that it could be uh, one of the two secret disciples, Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. And they would have been known by the gatekeeper, and they could have, they also would have been known by Anne. Um, so it could have been one of them, but I'm inclined to wonder why it couldn't be our streaker boy, <laughs> John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He had time. You know, he left, uh, and it could have gone back to his home there inside of Jerusalem. He lived in Jerusalem with his very wealthy mother. She's probably the one that owned that upper room where they had the Passover. He could have run home, put on some clothes, and then followed those lanterns and torches to see what they were going to do with Jesus. I'm sure he was too hyper. Adrenaline was pumping too much for him to go back to bed. So why not? And he definitely would have been known by Annas and Caiaphas because he lived in the city. And his mother was a wealthy woman. And this he was a teenager. And this young girl was a teenager. So they might have known each other. And she knew that he was maybe a secret follower of the Lord. I don't know. That makes sense to me. But we don't know who he was definitively. We can't be dogmatic. But whoever he was, he did pass right through without being challenged. And the gate was shut behind him. So it is this mystery disciple who observes everything that's taking place. He no doubt saw Jesus led across the courtyard, through a doorway, perhaps up a stairway, and into some upper chamber of rooms in Annas' palace. He also observed that in the courtyard there was a fire of coals, which is a charcoal fire. And there were men standing around it, probably other temple guard and and servants, standing there warming themselves, rubbing their hands against the cold of the night. The night was cold. Did you get that? It was cold that night, which makes us remember that Jesus a few hours ago was sweating on a cold night. And that just amplifies the agony of his prayer there in Gethsemane. Not my will but thine be done. It was cold that night, but he was sweating drops of blood. So, this disciple looks about and he assumes that the greatest danger is over now. Jesus is up there with Annas. 
Everyone is huddled around the fire. No one's paying any attention to him. So perhaps it's now safe for Peter to enter. Now, he, he had been with Peter before they got to the gate. And then Peter went and hid somewhere in the shadows of the street. So when he sees that the coast is clear, this disciple, um, goes, he returns to the gate. He speaks to the girl at the gate. Then he goes out into the street and no doubt beckons to pe- Peter and says, okay, it's safe now. You can come on in. And then he re-enters that gate with Peter. You know, it would have been a whole lot better for Peter if he had gotten the signal from God in that closed gate, right? That was a closed door. He shouldn't have tried. He shouldn't have lingered around, but he didn't. He entered with this man. Now, the chronology of events, as recorded in the four Gospels, gets really hard to sort out right here. Uh, it's kind of difficult to figure out if this doorkeeping damsel, this young girl, if she spoke to Peter immediately after he entered the gate or if she spoke to him later when he's standing by the fire, warming his hands. It actually appears when you read through all four accounts that she spoke to him twice. Um, And Luke tells us that she looked at Peter intently. She kept looking at him and scrutinizing him. And finally, she asks him, Art not thou also, see also, also, one of this man's disciples? So she knows that the other guy, the unknown disciple, is a disciple. She knows that. So she says, aren't you also one of his, Jesus' disciples? And to the others at the fire, she says, she asks this question, or she says this. She says, he also was with him. And Peter then replies, I am not. His words were not only a denial of his relationship with Christ, as one of his disciples, but they were also an outright lie, weren't they? That was a lie, a denial and a lie. Peter, who had so confidently boasted just earlier, a few hours earlier that night, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Peter had fallen. I wonder if he even recognized that he had done, what he had just done was one of the denials that Jesus had predicted. I don't know if it even dawned on him yet that that was one of the denials. This probably all happened so quickly and and just kind of naturally that Peter responded perhaps as just about anyone would, you know, thinking it was important for him to keep his cover and remain undetected. So he told the girl, this is over in Mark, he told the girl, I don't know what you're talking about. Another lie, right? I don't know what you're talking about. And Mark tells us that he moved from the fire, which would expose his face, And you know, his face and his dress, I'm sure, gave him away as a Galilean. So he moved from the fire to the darkness of the porch. And I wonder if he understood that the first noose of the lie had just coiled itself around his spirit. And Mark simply says this. We don't read this in John, but over in Mark, it says, And the cock crew. Denial number one. We have to wait for 2012 for the next the dial. <laughs> All right. Meanwhile, while somewhere um, inside of the high priest's residence, the Lord's first trial is taking place, and it is before Annas. So uh, let's look at that. John is the only one to record this. If it wasn't for John, we would not even know that Jesus stood before Annas. We wouldn't know the conversation that went on between Annas and the Lord. So let's look at the Lord's first Jewish trial, verses 19 to 23. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? This trial was absolutely illegal in every sense, absolutely every aspect. It was held secretly, not publicly. It was held at the, in the night. It was held... And they weren't ever supposed to have trials at night. But not only that, it was held on the night of a feast day, which was also illegal according to their own rules. And there was no assembled quorum of the Sanhedrin. 
There was no official charge against Jesus, and there was no one who brought a charge against Jesus. The trial before Annas here was nothing short of an effort to get the defendant to testify against himself, which was also totally illegal. Annas had obviously waited up. He was 70 years old. He didn't go with the arresting party to the Gethsemane. He stayed there. He waited for Jesus to be brought before him, and then he approached him very craftily. And he asked about two subjects. He asked Jesus about his disciples, and he asks him about his doctrine. Now, he might have acted, you know, he he was probably a good manipulator and actor, and he probably acted kind of casual and intimate and friendly and, you know, trying to get some information out of him. He, he wanted to really see how far the network had gone. Uh, how many men are there who have gathered around this professing Messiah? He knew that there were many Galileans in the crowd on Palm Sunday who had hailed him as Messiah. So how many are there? He wants to know names, doesn't he? He wants to know locations. He, he might wonder how many have been, actually been influenced in the Sanhedrin itself because he knows that Nicodemus stood up for the Lord at one point in time and said that Jesus deserved a fair trial. That was back in John 7. So he's trying to find out about the Lord's disciples. And what does the Lord do? Speaks not a word about his disciples. He's keeping his own until the end. He's keeping them safe. And then he asks him about his doctrine. And he wasn't asking in order to be enlightened, was he? Annas didn't want to know, what do you have to say, and let me digest it all. (laughs) And Jesus didn't speak to him about his doctrine. He didn't say, well, let me give you the Sermon on the Mount. I'll give you a revised form of the, you know. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, <laughs> he knows that Annas is just looking for some doctrinal flaw that he can use as a charge to get a charge against him. So, since he's at a loss for a charge, you know, you have to have a charge to accuse somebody of something. So uh, <clears throat> he doesn't tell him anything. Instead, what he says is that I've always spoken openly. I've never been evasive. You know, my teaching hasn't been in private darkness uh, like you're doing here. You know, I've always been out in the open, in the daylight, public. Uh, you could call in thousands of people who have heard me. They're in the city right now. Go get them. They'll tell you what I taught. That's what he's saying. And really, in doing that, he is implying that what everything Annas is doing is deceitful and wicked and illegal and wrong. Everyone knew also the doctrines that he had been claiming. He was referred to by his followers as the Messiah, the figure every devout Jew was waiting for. There was no doubt what he had been saying. You have to wonder if it wasn't the case that um, both Annas and Caiaphas were not only acquainted with everything that Jesus had taught, but that they had studied it in detail because these men were too experienced not to know their enemy and to know their enemy very well. And they had their little spies everywhere, didn't they? I'm sure they knew everything Jesus had said and spoken. But Annas quickly finds out that he is totally outflanked by this one he's trying to interrogate. The obvious illegality of what he's doing is momentarily embarrassing for him. He loses face a little bit. And so, you see, there is this officer who would be a temple guard who quickly took it upon himself to ingratiate himself with this powerful high priest. You know, he steps in to to help the embarrassment of the moment. And what does he do? He slaps, with the palm of his hand, he slaps Jesus' face. And he rebuked him. He said, answerest the high priest so? What was this? This was a case of might trying to silence right, wasn't it? It's actually a case of puny human might trying to silence omnipotent might and absolute right. It's pathetic. It's too bad the officer picked the wrong one to to, uh, try to defend here. But uh, this is the first blow inflicted upon the Lord. First blow. And who did it come from? A Jew or a Gentile? Jew. This was a temple guard. Again, the pattern. The Jews first harmed him, and then the Gentiles. Well, there's not one hint of a word that Annas said or, or did anything to rebuke that officer for this illegal treatment of the prisoner. He didn't say a thing. I mean, think of this. Jesus has been mistreated. He has been arrested. He's been bound. He's been uh, taken and now struck in the face, all still without a single accusation against him. 
But through it all, we notice again his wonderful composure. He simply says, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. What did he say that was so evil? All he did was say, I've spoken out in the pu- I've spoken everywhere public you can think of. In all the synagogues across this nation, in the temple, out in the countryside, thousands of people have heard me. I spoke openly. Go get some of those witnesses and you can find out what I said. That's not evil, is it? It was the truth. So he says, if I spoke evil, give witness of the evil. But if well, why are you hitting me? He was asking for the accusation against him to be brought forth in a legal manner. But of course, there was no none. You see, what Annas is doing here is stalling for time. While this is going on, he is sending out his little people to look and bribe false witnesses. That's what's going on behind the scenes. And uh, if, if that particular temple guard had any sense of justice at all, he should have been pricked in his soul by the Lord's calm rebuke of what he had just done. Because in his heart of hearts, he knew that Jesus was right, didn't he? All right, that's all we have time for. I know I've gone a little bit overboard. We're going to have a, uh, a special now. And uh, let's close in prayer and then read if you can come forward and sing. This is really a, a tribute to all of those in the Bible study who have gone home before us. There's so many that we have had here in the past, and they have gone home to be with the Lord. And this is this song I know is just going to bless your heart. But think of those that have been part of our ministry here and now have, have beat us to the punch there with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for recording the failures of Peter and others who have gone before us so that we might recognize ourselves in them and that we might flee to you and accept from you what we don't have in ourselves. Thank you that Christ has prayed that our faith would not fail, that in the hour of trials you are pleading for us. We thank you for that truth. Help us to genuinely live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom and to truly set our affections on things that are above and not on things here on this earth. And Lord, as we know we'll be gathering with family and friends over the holiday season, we just pray, Lord, that you would open and heal the ears of any who are still lost. Grant them to be able to hear and to receive and to to see in your Son the only Savior of the world. And Lord, I do pray that nobody here in this room would uh, leave today with a false hope in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. For only you know that uh, there might be some among us who will not be able to return to this study in January because perhaps we might have slipped into eternity. And I do do truly pray, Father, that all of us will indeed one day reach that great place called heaven, which is our real and our lasting home. Now minister to us through Rita, we pray in your name. Amen. As a child I heard about a place called heaven Somewhere way up in the sky Where little girls could run down streets of gold And sometimes see an angel fly But now it's so much more to me It's where I'll live eternally In childlike faith I claimed him as my own Oh, some call it Canaan land Some call it Beulah land I call it home In that blessed land of no tomorrows A place of joy and peace, no sorrow Resting in the presence of the sun What a wondrous celebration Praising God for His salvation In that blessed land of no tomorrows Living in this world below
though so full of toil and trouble, peace is hard to find. But as a child of God, I rest on this assurance. I am His and He is mine. Living here cannot compare with all the glory we will share beyond this veil of sorrow, pain, and fear. With saints of old, I'll shout and sing praises to my God and King forevermore. With eyes of faith, I see a land of splendor where all is peace and night will never fall. On bended knee, the saints sing holy, holy to the mighty King of kings and Lord of all. In that blessed land of no tomorrows, a place of joy and peace, no sorrow, resting in the presence of the Son. I call it home 